0: Hi, folks. Wooden Boat Dan here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded several years ago, so some of the phone numbers, email addresses, website links, and time-sensitive information are no longer valid. Please keep that in mind as you listen. If you'd like to contact me, my email address is woodenboatdan at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hooked on Wooden Boats weekly podcast episode number 52. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday dear Hooked on Wooden Boats. Happy birthday to you and many more. Yes, folks. This is your host Dan Matson, and it is the one-year anniversary of Hooked on Wooden Boats. It's our birthday, and I am pretty excited about that. Been doing this for 52 weeks now, and having an absolute blast. I don't know how I could ever stop doing this. Uh, it's one of those things I can't not do. Although my dad told me never to use double negatives when I took English in junior high, but uh, Yeah, this is really fun stuff. And I am super excited today to have a really special interview for the first anniversary of Hooked on Wooden Boats. So you're going to want to stick around for the featured segment today, which is an hour-long interview. It's actually an hour and five minutes with Lynn and Larry Party of Sailing Fame. And if you don't know of Lynn and Larry, uh, they over the last 40 plus years have been sailing around the world in two wooden vessels that they built themselves, they've written a bunch of books, done a bunch of videos, and I had the opportunity to sit down with them in Port Townsend this past weekend, the day before the Port Townsend Wooden Boat Festival started, and interview them. And so for me, this was kind of like, imagine that you're a reporter, and You've started and a year later, you're an unknown reporter and you get an interview with the Queen of England or the Shah of Iran or the President of the United States. <laughs> That's how this felt. It was really cool. Larry and Lynn are awesome people, very down to earth. We connected right away. It was a lot of fun, so stick around for that interview. Please connect with me. You can do so via email, Dan at Hooked on Wooden Boats. You can subscribe to my monthly e newsletter at hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe. You can leave comments on my website under the blog post, hookedonwoodenboats.com. It's all about wooden boats, folks. You can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest if you look for Wooden Boat Dan there. You can call my voicemail feedback hotline at 424 two six one two three six zero. So today's episode is gonna be the probably the longest one I've put out. Normally they're thirty to fifty minutes in length. This one's probably gonna be uh hour and twenty minutes. So you may want to listen to it in two parts, you may not, but I've got some stuff I want to talk about and then play the interview with Lynn and Larry. So last weekend was the Port Townsend Wooden Boat Festival. And I spent the whole weekend there, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Actually car camped for the first time, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's, it's, um, I've got a little minivan, so I rolled out a little mattress and a sleeping bag. And I would wake up about every hour and wonder if somebody was shining their flashlight in on me. <laughs> but I figure I saved two nights of camping, which is maybe 30 bucks or so. And that paid for my round trip ferry to Port Townsend, so that was good. Hang on a second. Okay, I'm back. So the thing is, the day before the festival, I think it was Thursday morning, I sent out a little note to my E-news subscribers, uh, which is about 125 people right now, and told them, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be in Port Townsend this weekend. I'm doing a little presentation. I'm going to interview some really cool people like Lynn and Larry Party and John Harris from CLC Boats. And if you're going to be there or if you can make it, you know, give me a call. Here's my cell phone number. Let's hook up. And so later that day, I get an email from Corey Rubin in Florida. Corey's been listening to my podcast since it started. He's uh, fallen in love with wooden boats and sailing And uh, he and his girlfriend, Christina, have some real cool dreams for the future. So he sent me this really cool email, and I asked him to actually call my voicemail feedback hotline and read the email because it's kind of fun hearing it from the person that sent it rather than me reading it. So I'm going to play that uh, voice message right now. So take it away, Corey.
1: Hey, Dan, Corey Rubin here from Central Florida. Just wanted to call and let you know that uh, your podcast for the past couple of months has altered my and my girlfriend's lives a little bit. Um, we just bought spontaneously two tickets to the Port Townsend uh, Wooden Boat Festival last night, and we're going to fly out in Seattle tomorrow afternoon to uh, do basically a little scouting mission for what might turn into a cross-country car camp in my tiny car to attend the Northwest School Wooden Boat Building uh, from uh, 13 to 14. So looking forward to meeting you out there and meeting all kinds of good people. And uh, the parties, too, that's a big one. They're a huge inspiration for us. So I'll see you out there. Thanks, Dan.
0: So here's a cool thing. Because of this little podcast I started a year ago, Corey and... Christina, on the spur of the moment, flew up to Seattle, drove to Port Angeles, or not Port Angeles, Port Townsend, came to the festival. I got to hook up with them. We had dinner. We hung out together. Uh, They had the opportunity to spend some time with the parties. Actually, ended up having breakfast with them one morning accidentally. Uh, So it was really cool. And uh, they are planning on, a year from now, Uh, moving to Port Townsend area, and uh, Corey going to the wooden boat school there, Christina working, and then after that, at some point, building a wooden sailboat and sailing the world, the high seas. So this is really fun stuff. Also got to meet up with Ralph Duncan, who's one of the uh, podcast listeners, and he came up from Silverdale, Washington. So the four of us hooked up and spent some time together, and that was kind of the first unofficial Hooked on Wooden Boats meetup. So that was really cool. So the weekend was fabulous at the festival. I got to interview some really cool people, uh, which I'm going to be playing those interviews over the next four to six weeks. Uh, Steve Stone from Off Center Harbor, Eric Blake also from Off Center Harbor, and a shipwright at Brooklyn Boat Yard in Brooklyn, Maine. John Harris of CLC Boats, Freya Fenwood of Pygmy Kayak, Dale and Linda Burright, who built a 26-foot Calkins bartender. I got to catch up with Howard Rice and John Wellsford. a little short interview there. Also, Josh Colvin and Anika Colvin. Got to get an update from them with SCAMP and their magazine, Small Craft Advisor magazine. And I got to catch up with Tug Busey on an interview also, which I've interviewed Tug in the past. And I got to do a little interview with Thomas Scheinflug. It's a German name. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but I think I'm pretty close. And Thomas was crewing on the Pacific Grace, which is a gorgeous schooner. I can't remember the length. It's over 100 feet that was built, finished about 10 years ago. And that's a training vessel. Really cool. So I did some really outstanding interviews, had an absolute blast, Uh, gave a presentation on Sunday about Hooked on Wooden Boats, and I ran into some technical difficulties. Uh, (laughs) First thing that happened is I got up to the room to give the presentation, went to plug in my computer, and the power adapter that goes into the wall was missing the plug portion, it's a two-part piece, and I had just had that earlier that morning. So I was left with a computer that had about 30% battery power. And then we had technical difficulties hooking up to the smart board. We finally got her hooked up. Uh, Anyway, the presentation went okay. I ran out of battery power towards the end, got the warning message, got rid of that, finished playing the video interview, uh, raffled off a few things. And so it was a good learning experience. I'm going to do some things differently next year, but it was definitely fun. And actually, next year, I'm thinking about possibly giving a presentation on um, building a 12-foot lap straight canoe, which is what I'm doing right now. I'm just about done with it, about 85%. haven't worked on it in the last week because I've been so busy, but uh, all I've got left to do is paint and varnish the boat. So I may do that next year. We'll see what happens. But if you can make it to a wooden boat festival anywhere near where you live, go for it because... There's a lot of really fun people. Uh, It's an artsy, crafty, historical thing. It's just, it's so much fun. It's just like, wow. I mean, I had so much fun. I don't know how one person could have that much fun. I I mean, I actually felt like two people at times because I was having as much fun as two people could have. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Anyway, can't say enough good about that. Also made some connections for future interviews in the Port Townsend area. Casey Cronkite, who has sailed her Spitzgatter, I believe that's how you pronounce it, which is a Danish-Norwegian boat, double-ended sailboat, has sailed that around the world. And uh, also I'm going to hook up with John Lockwood in the future from Pygmy Kayak, the founder there, to talk about what he's up to and his story. So... Got some really fun stuff planned, so you're going to want to come back for those interviews. Next up is the Wooden Boat Tip of the Week. I believe this is number four in the series that I started about a month ago. I went to an epoxy demonstration done by Bruce Blatchley of the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building. And he was talking about how to uh, put fiberglass cloth and epoxy over... Uh, part of a wooden part of a boat to protect it and one of the things that he did is a pretty simple thing that I have not done before is when he was using a foam roller to saturate the fiberglass cloth he was doing a little uh, I think it was a deck part a flat deck part he would lay the cloth over and then he mixed up his epoxy and he had a little piece of Akumi plywood it didn't have to be akumi, it could be any kind of plywood like half inch that was probably about 6 inches wide, maybe 10 inches long. And after he got his epoxy mixed up in a little paper cup, he would pour part of it out on this little piece of plywood, which he called a pallet. Then he would use that to roll out the epoxy onto his foam roller to get a nice even distribution on the roller. And then from there, he would take the roller to the fiberglass And roll it about five or six inches back and forth about once or twice Uh, and it would put a nice even coat of epoxy on the glass cloth then he would go back pour a little more epoxy on the pallet roll out the foam roller again make it nice and even on the roller the distribution of the epoxy and then go back to the cloth and do another five to six inches so that was new to me and totally makes sense. I mean, it's not a real, uh, it's not a rocket science kind of thing, but I've always kind of tried to work out of the cup and pour it onto the cloth and then roll it out. And if you do that, you get some heavier spots and you've got to come back with some kind of a scraper and and remove the excess epoxy. Uh, so this pallet method is awesome. I would highly recommend it. And I'm going to put some information on the... Uh, Uh, show notes today about how to do that. So think about doing that. Take a six by 10 piece of plywood, pour your epoxy onto that, roll out your foam roller, and then fill your fiberglass cloth from there. Thinking that would work for other types of things also, maybe even painting a boat. But uh, anyway, that's a tip of the week. Tip number four. I would like to give a shout-out to the new subscribers to Hooked on Wooden Boats. We've got five new subscribers in the last week, which is pretty cool. Thank you, Mark Shemansky, Michael Berta, Ralph Zur, spelled S-Z-U-R, so I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Ralph, Brad Peterson, and Bert Atkinson. Welcome to the monthly e-newsletter distribution list. I look forward to hooking up with you guys and staying in contact and I hope you enjoy the podcast, which you probably are. You wouldn't have subscribed to the e-newsletter. So if you do want to subscribe and you haven't subscribed, again you can go to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe. I won't try to sell you anything. It's a place for me to connect with people that like what I'm doing talk about some of the projects I'm working on, uh, provide some resources. Occasionally I'll throw in a little video clip that's kind of fun to look at, so that's what it's all about. We are going to move on now to the interview with Lynn and Larry Party. That's spelled P-A-R-D-E-Y. Their website is L-A-N-D-L-P-A-R-D-E-Y.com and you can buy books and videos and really cool stuff. You can sign up for their blog. Really great place to go for sailing tips, boat building tips. They've got a bunch of books, so. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm sure you will. So let's take it away, Lynn and Larry. Okay, it is September 6, 2012, and I'm sitting with Lynn and Larry Party of Sailing Fame. Lynn and Larry, welcome to the show today. Good to be here. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, you're and welcome. And at a particularly fun festival, too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're here a day before the festival officially starts, and uh, appreciate you guys hooking up with me, even though I had no idea who I was. You just got an email and uh, showed up here for this podcast, so that's really fun. So, yeah. Um, Lynn, let's start with you. I want to ask about your youth, what it was like. I understand you grew up in Michigan, at least for a few years, and moved to California. But tell me about your childhood, what that was like.
2: Well, my childhood was wonderful, actually. I look back at it and I almost feel guilty how much fun it was and what nice, really special parents I had. But my father uh, was a tool and die maker oh. and worked with his hands. And I one of my favorite things was to watch him build things for the family but also he had a little shop at home where he did machining work and the most magic thing i ever saw was he used to machine measuring blocks out of steel that they used for getting perfect measurements of different precision parts so he'd mill them so fine that he'd take two pieces of normal metal no magnetism no nothing and stick them together and i couldn't get them apart you had to slide them to get them apart. The oh. machine's so close. <laughs> for real? I thought that was really magic, and I find out that's the way you know machinists work with that kind of tolerance. But uh, he took us sailing as a family. He His biggest joy in life was a little 13 foot old town sloop. which was a little lab strake sloop built in Michigan. Yeah. And he took us sailing on the lakes of Michigan for about a month each year. We shared a cabin with two other families which meant I was the youngest of seven boys and my mother was pretty good about uh, handling the situation uh, when I used to come home crying because the boys didn't wait for me she used to say if you can't keep up with them invent something that you do that's so interesting that they want to stay with you. She says, "But don't come crying to me."
0: <laughs> <laughs> were some of these your brothers, Lynn?
2: Well, I had a brother. You had a brother, but all the rest were the two oh, other families, okay. I and so uh, we—it was—it was—they were great to me. Yeah. But sometimes they did use me a little bit like a basketball. Yeah. But it, it was a
3: small one. She was a kid.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was small when I was a kid. <laughs> not much has changed. Yeah. But, uh, no, I was always the littlest. But uh, they were wonderful. The guys were pretty darn good to me, but. Uh, I learned the lesson that if you want to enjoy life, you have to get out there in the rough and tumble and keep up with them. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: But um, my dad sold the boat. We moved to California just before I was six years old. And that was my sailing experience. Okay. Uh, Until when I was 12 or 13, my dad used to be able to rent a boat in Newport Beach. We moved to California. And the whole family would drive together for two hours down to Newport Beach, where my dad could afford to rent a boat for two hours.
0: A Bay Bomber. Called
2: the Balboa Bay Bomber. <laughs> they were called Balboa Boats, but we all call really? them. Really? Yeah.
0: So That's not the Hess boat. Oh,
2: no, no. These, no. I think, no. were like Lido 14s would be the closest oh, okay. kind of boats. Mm-hmm. And the whole family would go sailing for two hours. And I remember one thing I did. The one thing I remember from that is my dad always would go to Windward for the first hour. Because that way he was sure to get the boat back on time because he couldn't afford to pay for any extra time. honey,
0: don't go downwind first. <laughs> don't go downwind first. <laughs> so smart <that's>, move. <laughs> yeah. He was a smart guy. But
2: we're talking, like I say, one day a year until yeah. I was about 13 or 14. Okay. So my sailing experience was only memories. Mm-hmm. and The two memories were that my dad was always very happy when he was on that boat. Yeah, He, felt he looked like king of the world. So one time... But I always saw my dad looking really confident. Huh. And the other was this beating to Windward first so that you could run home yeah. and be there on time.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. You went to school in uh, what part? Were you in Los Angeles? Itself, I or? went to
2: school in the San Fernando Valley, a place okay. called Pacoima. It was the closest town that people would recognize. Yeah. And uh, I grew up next door to the field where they kept Francis the Talking Mule. And there was actually five Francis, but there was a television programs, so over my back fence was all these mules on this farm, so it was a really nice place to grow up in the yeah. valley and it, it doesn 't exist anymore as many people know, because when I grew up, there was thirty thousand people in the San Fernando Valley, yeah. and three million orange trees and now there 's three million people and thirty thousand orange trees maybe in people's backyards.
0: Really? Yeah. It's changed
2: completely. But it was a wonderful place to grow up. My mother used to tell me to to get out of her hair and go play on the freeway and she meant it because they'd started building the Golden State Freeway and then they ran out of money and it was a block and a half away. It was this, you know, twenty mile long strip of grass. That eventually became a freeway. Really? For about five years I was growing up, we used to go and all of us would meet down there and play on the freeway. (laughs) That's hilarious. everyone thought it was a joke. They said, who's ever going to really build a freeway here? Take a look now. Funny. So sailing was the farthest thing from my mind. I grew up, you know, that's the edge of the desert out there. Mm -hmm. And we used to Mm -hmm. go up to the desert and play racing cars and... Boating was not. So it was very rural out
0: there at that
2: time? Yeah, it was just the edge of rural. Edge of rural, yeah. So it was really nice. Chatsworth was a place we'd go, family would go climbing. So my family did like the outdoors. Mm -hmm. As I passed the age of 14, I didn't like the outdoors at all because it messed my hair up and screwed my nails up. I was much more interested in being terribly girly and uh, school. I loved school and uh, loved studying numbers, music
0: so Do you play some instruments, Lynn?
2: I played the piano quite seriously for about 8 or 9 years of my youth and uh, until I found out that I was a very good technician and I wasn't a musician, there's a difference but mm-hmm. uh, Larry encouraged me to play piano whenever we were building a boat or in a place where we were there Mm -hmm. for a while but later he got me a guitar which turned out to be much more portable yeah much more and (laughs) a
0: piano
2: (laughs) (laughs) I like to sing lighter
0: (laughs) too yeah yeah Yeah.
2: (laughs) and my whole family likes singing my mother sang with a professional choir uh, classic choir not uh, church Mm -hmm. and she had a beautiful voice and the whole family liked to sing together and do singing and musical things so
0: So there were two kids in the family? There were three,
2: children. three I, children. There was a surprise. Okay. My sister, who came along much later, mm-hmm. eight years later than me, mm-hmm. and uh, we figured my mother brought her along so we'd have a toy to play with.
0: Mm.
2: And when she was a year old, my mother started screaming at my brother and I. put her down. She's got her own legs. We don't let her walk. She'll never learn to do it on her own because we carried her everywhere. I mean, she was so much fun. So I, I had a really ideal upbringing. Family insisted on us. Being serious about education,
0: uh, we didn't. And have you went to college after high
1: school. Uh,
2: that was a bit of a problem. I did. I wanted to be a civil engineer by that t- by the time I was getting near college. Uh, so I did go off to San. The, what that was called? State College at Northridge, California State College at Northridge, which mm. later became part of the University of California, but it was brand new at that time and. Um, They came up against a professor who didn't want women in his physics class. That was not, just didn't think women should go into the School of Engineering. And at that time, he didn't have to take students that he didn't want to. It was just, it was before equal rights. People don't remember those times when professors could... Discrimination didn't exist. They just didn't want women in their classes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, so it kind of discouraged me. But on the other hand, I didn't find university. It didn't fit me. I was so used to being the top of my class everywhere I'd been and in schools where I knew everybody and knew what I was doing. And here, all of a sudden, I was in classes with 200 and 300 people. You know, first year college classes and uh, I also don't think I really knew what I wanted mm. to do I hadn't really found what I wanted so I ended up doing a lot of card playing in the cafeteria with a boyfriend whose mother was a grandmaster at bridge and who used to coach us and uh, nine months later I was given choice to asked to leave the university because of the gambling had gotten out of control mm. we were you're fleecing. We were. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good system going. We, they, uh, we, and I looked so innocent and small and young.
0: <laughs> People trusted you, and yeah, right?
2: Tried. They still,
0: yeah. Still. They still do. They still do. She <laughs> wouldn't <done>. cheat me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we weren't exactly cheating. We just were each other better information yeah. than they had. <laughs> yeah. We did a hell of a lot of practicing too. <laughs> The, but it wasn't my skill it was the you know this, the training
3: yeah but it was
2: it, it really was the best thing that ever happened i wasn't ready for university mm-hmm. and uh, then um, I went to work for a small tool company the owner well actually the the owner died and left the company to his employees and the one of the employees had a construction company and he moved the Offices into the offices of this tool company, and I was hired as the office manager, you know, just a general dog's body because I, the, you know, I was very good with numbers right right from the beginning, like mm-hmm. numbers. And the other, one of the other owners of the company was an accountant, and he said, Okay, let's just start training you. He says, You're so good with numbers. Let's show you how the American tax system works. Let's start showing you about how small businesses work. And he really took me under his wing, and for a year, I Managed all all the books for all three companies and all he drummed into me right from the beginning was cash flow he says that is the lifeblood of any small business and the one thing small businessmen forget to take the time to do and he said
0: debt is slavery
2: and uh that stuck with you huh It did. It really did. So you know. So he was wonderful. It was, and it was fun working because it was. It's what my mind needs, which is variety, Mm -hmm. challenges,
1: Mm
2: every day different. Mm -hmm. But then, um, I saw this job with Bob's Big Boy Hamburgers that also included the newest and latest thing. They needed someone who was interested in learning about computers. And they were the first company to have an IBM 1040 outside of the military. Wow. And so uh, they needed someone with accounting skills, interested in numbers, interested in learning about computers. What year was that? Man? That would be 1964. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, so uh, I went to Bob's Big Boy Hamburgers, had franchises all over the Remember country.
3: when he interviewed you, for the job?
2: <laughs> they asked me what I could do. Yeah, and I said anything you want
0: <laughs> <laughs> great answer Hired on the spot huh? <laughs> I was, I was wow cool
2: you know, you know, he, but they wanted to but you know the funniest thing is I had the world's biggest inferiority complex and I still haven't completely gotten over it but I just realized that if I just tried things and I failed the worst that would happen is they'd fire me yeah and at that time my feeling was I'm 20 years old if I don't like it here I'm you know, I'm fired, I can go and try something completely different and I you know there's try it. It was my whole feeling, and it was good fun and uh, maybe it wouldn't work for everybody, but for me it did mm-hmm. but you know, when I went to work there, I was fascinated. I ended up sitting between the computer department and the accounting department, trying to explain to each of them what the other could do because they gave me some training i b m spent i spent a week and a half with specialists there learning
0: cool.
2: the potential of the computer
0: and that took up probably a whole room or part of a room or two two, two rooms yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: it was very large
0: they had to refrigerate it too didn't they
2: yeah oh, so, oh. yeah, well, I mean, real, yeah. Old, but... well basically the biggest part that's, it'll go away yeah uh, the biggest part of the computer was the air conditioners mm-hmm. uh, but it was peg, you know peg boards and wires and it was fascinating it really yeah. was but uh more fascinating than that was the fact that I was not enjoying the guys I was dating and uh, I was dating all my brother's university friends because he was in nice fraternity and they were all fun but I just didn't feel very satisfied and uh, I still to this day do not know why it came into my mind there was a picture across the room for me of a big schooner black and white photograph and I turned to the guy who was working next to me and I said, I've saved up 200 bucks, which would be probably the equivalent to 2,000, 2,500 dollars nowadays and I'm going to buy myself a sailboat and it just came to me, that just that moment and you know, psychological but it obviously that picture had been turning my mind Yeah. and the guy next to me said, well that's Schooner over there, and I didn't even know what a schooner was at the time. See that schooner over there? He says the company owns that. And he said, uh, if you're really interested in buying a sailboat, call the skipper of the schooner. He you know, he can give you some information because that's where I start if I were you. Mm-hmm. So it turned out I've been actually doing the accounts for that schooner. I'd been working on the accounts for oh, wow. the Double Eagle, and it was owned by the company, but the uh, but Bob Wine, who actually owned the company was using the boat. It was part of their tuna fleet. Mm-hmm. It come with a fleet of tuna boats that they'd purchased. Shrimp boats. To, shrimp boats. Shrimp boats. Excuse me, shrimp boats. So I called the skipper, and he said, well, we happen to have a little eight-foot tender that called Scamp, or something like that. I forget. Yeah. And it would be a perfect beginner's boat. And if you come down, I'll throw it to you sometime. So I said, I'll be right down. And, uh, I drove 120 miles or something like that to Newport after work, to, and uh, the skipper was quite shocked to find when I knocked on the side of this big schooner and the skipper put his head over this ivy, he said to me, are you the old ha- the, the hag from head office, <laughs> he said, you're the hag from head office, and they looked <laughs> at me and I was wearing high heels and tight skirt and thoroughly inappropriate. But he took me out for dinner and on the way we stopped in a bar because he had to give someone the car keys that, you know, I guess he'd move somebody's boat and had the keys for their car or something and mm-hmm. Larry was playing pool there. Oh. It's that simple and Larry came walking over and says, hey Bob, who's the chick? <laughs> First words i ever heard him say and uh, Bob said, her name's Lynn, she's with me, you're playing pool, see you later. And Turned out, Larry had stolen another girlfriend from him previously, and the... he was a little defensive. He was a little yeah, defensive. There are yeah. of jealousies there. But uh, the next day, so long story short, I looked at the little boat, and he said, "Why don't you come down and I'll give you a sailing lesson? See if you really want to do this." He was very nice and didn't try to talk me into anything, and or maybe he was trying to talk me into another, a date or something. I don't know. But uh, so I said, "I'll come down back tomorrow and try this." And the next day I drove down, and uh, once again, hundred and something miles. The four freeways were efficient, although now they've become just as inefficient because they're clogged up out there. Right. But uh, went to um, have the sailing lesson, and the schooner wasn't there. And I'm not, I'm not used to going down to docks and walking around docks or anything, but I was standing there where this big empty space of water was, And Larry drove in in his little MGTC, and he uh, said, aren't you Lynn? He drove into this parking lot right there. (laughs) I said, yeah. And I said, he said, I met you last night. He says, if you're looking for Bob Sloan, he's probably off on a charter or something. He gets called away quite often. So why don't you come and have a cup of coffee with me? So I I really didn't have a better answer, so we walked into the cafe that was just there. You know, the restaurant was right near the boat landing that's why he was there and while we were having our coffee poured Sloan walks in and says hey Larry I thought she was Lynn was with me and <laughs> Larry says and these hilarious quotes now early bird gets the worm
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and that's where it all started I ran away with Larry three, three, days, three dates later
0: Oh wow
2: uh, cool. Yeah, uh, so, you know, he was doing something exciting and fun. He was a yacht skipper. Yeah, yeah. He had a keel timber, and uh, was just starting to
0: starting to make seraphin at that time. Yeah, he was just starting yeah. to build
2: his first boat, and he was skipper on a t- thirty ton
0: 53
2: fifty three a fifty three footer. Okay. And a charter boat, mm-hmm. and he'd just come back from sailing with Bob Sloan on a big scho- on the big schooner over to Hawaii and back, and making a film over there. Wow. So to me, he was everything my brother's friends weren't. Yeah. He was uh, doing something on his own. He was had big dreams. It wasn't about sitting on, up late at night and talking about how to save the you know the world. It was about how to get out and do something that you want to do.
0: Yeah, cool, so, uh, cool. So. Let's pause there for a second, and then Larry, tell me about your background, your youth, growing up, and. You were at Lake Shuswap in Canada.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was there till I was about 15 years old. Okay. From about six years old to 15, mm-hmm. and I grew up on a lake, and uh, I had several boats on the lake, mm-hmm. and uh, even a dugout canoe that was really desperately needing to prepare repairs. So, was cracked for about six feet. <laughs> oh, oh wow! And I tried several methods of repairing it, none of which were
0: successful. And I learned what didn't work.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so you just did that on your own, just experimented, or well, did you have some help?
3: Or I was, I guess, fourteen or something like that. And I was interested in working with my hands. My grandfather was an excellent craftsman. He could do anything. And he was my fund of knowledge. You know. mm. And uh, he lived close by to where you were. Well, are? yeah, nearby. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, those were my first boats. And uh, I had a twelve-foot rowing boat, that I put a sail on it. Was a, a cedar pole and a blanket, a wool blanket oh, really? and I found out it would only go one way, downwind <laughs> 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 funny about that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, then we moved down to this coast and I got into sailing more Where? Did, what coast did you move to? the British, the British Columbia Coast okay, yeah and we lived in North Vancouver, and I belonged to the West Vancouver Yacht Club. Hmm.
2: The reason he got into boats is he lost his driver's license from hot rodding, right? I guess a
3: simple way of saying that. <laughs> It was more traumatic than that. <laughs> yeah, really.
2: Yeah.
3: So uh, I bought uh, a El Toro dinghy, my first sailing boat. And uh, I proceeded to scare the daylights out of my girlfriend, (laughs) taking her out in it. And uh, she's never forgotten either. (laughs) But she's still
2: a girlfriend? (laughs) (laughs) Shh. After both of us. Oh!
3: Then I bought a 20 foot double ender, a little baby calling Archer. Okay. And uh, with a lid on it. Mm -hmm. It was a nice little boat, particularly in the wintertime or when it was raining. Yeah. And uh, it had a Briggs & Stratton inboard, and we could keep our legs warm with the, it was air cool. Oh, sit by the engine. Yeah. <laughs> put a, a blanket over our legs. And oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and then my dad bought that boat for me, and I bought a 27-foot Tumler & Sloop. And by this time, I was working, and I had a, a full-time job. And I bought this 27-foot Tom Lahrens sloop. Mm-hmm. which was a magnificent boat. It was all built out of one mahogany log. kidding? Okay. Everything was varnished except the bottom paint. Wow. Right down to the bilges. Mm-hmm. This was before you met, Lynn? Yeah. Okay. And uh, it gave me an appreciation
0: of good workmanship. And, yeah. And, uh, so that was a plank-on-frame boat? Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: But it had steel frames.
0: It had steel
3: frames every third one.
2: Oh, wow.
3: Were the building molds were the steel frames. They oh, I see. They planked it and then they dug the frames inside it. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was copper riveted. Except the steel frames had iron rivets, you know, galvanized iron rivets.
0: Wow.
2: It was built for the Crown Prince of Denmark
3: for
0: by you the know. Norwegians. And you know, that was when you were up in British Columbia, you had that boat?
3: Yeah, a industrial, Canadian industrialist bought over from from Denmark, mm-hmm. and uh, somehow a Captain of the Navy bought it, and I bought it from him. Wow! But it was, was it a sloop rig or yeah, three quarter rig sloop? Mm-hmm.
2: Larry raced it really, really successfully. Oh, okay. Uh, Larry started out racing, and it's kind of funny. Uh, he he showed, gave me a copy of the book that. Really got him racing, because Larry told me that his dream was always to get off cruising and get away, and he, you know, from time he's get longer,
3: longer holidays than two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was thinking more like two or three months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, but so he read a book by Uffa Fox. Okay. That said the best way to really learn how to sail is to join. The local club racing mm-hmm. because by going out racing you get out in all weathers mm. you learn to maneuver the boat without thinking about any engines
1: mm.
2: because you can't on the race course and you learn to maneuver it in close quarters because on the starting line and around buoys Yeah. so that sailing becomes your first love and your first inclination and so Larry told me that his... It was
3: good, good advice. and still is good advice.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were in a sailing club for quite a few years up there in yeah, Vancouver. several years. Yeah, uh-huh,
2: yeah. So, and he was West
3: became,
0: Van Yacht Club.
2: Uh-huh. He became the junior commodore, you know, teaching all the juniors how to sail, or...
3: I think they taught me more than I taught them. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So you know, he was a sailor first. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's been a big part of our success is that we uh, we look for sailing
3: solutions, not engine solutions, mm-hmm. or mechanical solutions of various types. Yeah,
2: but also the sailing has, was always adding the adventure to the whole thing, so that we went. I, I don't, you know, I don't know how much your audience knows about us so far, but yeah, you know, we voyaged from year after year and
0: 40
2: plus years 40 some years yeah. and it always was about the sailing without looking for trying to it wasn't about a lifestyle mm-hmm. for us so there was always the new adventure of how to sail into new places successfully
0: yeah.
2: and to enjoy the sailing and to meet the people who were sailing because sailing has a common thread that goes right from the Bible through all of the people you meet Along the waterways, you have something in common with the fishermen. You have something in common with the commercial seamen. So it was a whole world of people, not just a lifestyle to let us go to a different country and sit in a, you know, go and see the museums. It was yeah. really part of this whole culture that I see and the history of sailing, and it's really interesting. And yeah, quite one of our favorite things that we did sailing was following Ulysses' trail and thinking about the problems when when we were in the Mediterranean. Other people complained about, oh, there's really no wind here, and we said, but Ulysses moved around the sea, and sure he rowed a bit, but you can't row all over this place. So we would read. But he didn't have
3: light weather sails.
2: But he didn't have the light weather sails we had. (laughs) 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 Sails. So where he rowed, we used nylon sails quite often. But still, so the the sailing, Larry's sailing background and racing background really added, I think, tremendously to our life.
0: Yeah, definitely. So how did you get to California, Larry? Uh, hitchhike. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> and why would you go down there? It was uh,
3: an affluent area, and I was probably going to get a job of some kind. Okay, what kind
0: of work were you doing? Uh, I wanted to do
3: something with boats, and I got a job on uh, eventually on this charter boat, the 53-foot catch we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And uh, I was working on it eventually. Three days a week, and then I had four days to work on my boat to build your boat, boat which, which was pretty well perfect, you know. Because yeah. I still had the income, yeah, and uh, and so I got four hundred dollars a month. I remember, yeah. yeah, and that I couldn't put that much into the boat. I couldn't, no way. I could you spend that much money on the boat really in a <laughs> in month? Oh
2: man! Yes. <laughs> well, they, how did he get from here to there? He you know, he eventually sold the, the pretty little Lauren that he then he had upgraded it quite a bit.
0: Did you sail it down to California? No, he sold it. In I Canada sold it. In Dan- okay. Yeah.
2: And had
0: the,
2: and found out that he wasn't happy with the jobs he was doing up there. So then he said, "Well, I've got five thousand dollars in my pocket, which was a lot of money back yeah. then. We we're talking about fifty-five thousand, maybe. Yeah, be the equivalent right. now, and he's twenty-four years old." And
3: I remember when I went through immigration at the border. And this guy was interviewing me because I had to show I was going down there and and not just going to live off the land, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to show him my bank account in the bank book, you know. Really? And and he he looked at me and he said, Here, you're single, no wife, $5,000. God, I wish I (laughs) was (laughs) you.
2: And Larry had Larry had uh, you know found it he had a pretty good job and lost it because he wasn't an office worker he'd mm-hmm. gotten a good job and Crown Zeller back selling target paper. what did he used to say to me?
3: Uh, our sales show we've touched a new bottom this
1: year <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Larry Larry was not.
2: Cut out for it. He made a couple clerical errors, and yeah. they, they asked him to leave. And that and he says, "Okay, I've got this money in the bank. Let's go do something." And yeah, and he went down to look for a cruising boat.
0: In other words, I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So might have been the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad thing. So
2: he was looking for a boat to go cruising. because yeah. Remember, he grew up in the era when John Goswell had just come back and written a book about building a boat in his mother's garage 20 foot boat and then he sailed it around the world for five years and uh, a book called Treka John Goswell's Treka Around the World wonderful book wow and uh, he just had a wondrous time and he met some of the great voyaging sailors and he came back to Vancouver and was interviewed by the newspaper the Sunday paper made a big deal out of it and one of the interviewers asked how much did you have in your pocket when you left and John had had five hundred dollars he said, "How much did you come back with?" And he came back with three hundred dollars.
1: Yeah.
3: I said, "That's for me." <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he had all these vendors. He so keeps
3: sixty percent of what you leave with, right? yeah.
2: <laughs> or earn some on the way. But yeah. so you know, so Larry was spurred on by yeah. Seeing so he was a did did
0: you big read influence. That book, Larry?
3: Yeah, he was a big influence. He was ten years older than me. John Goswell. Yeah, and, and uh, I read his book when I was in high school. You know. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wow, cool. So when did you meet Lyle Hess? Because he he was in California at that time.
3: I got down to California and I met him. Okay. Just before I met Lynn. Okay. How did
0: you meet him? How did you meet Lyle? Uh,
3: I guess Hale Field introduced us. He was the original owner of Renegade.
2: So how did Renegade come in your life?
3: Bob Sloan said it was a neat boat.
2: Yeah. Larry was looking, for, spent several months looking for little boats while he was working. And uh, good small boats, good affordable boats, weren't. This was before production boats came along. And uh, uh, people kept the little wonderful boats they built for themselves and
3: passed them on.
2: Passed them on to family or friends. And so there wasn't, he wasn't finding anything. And Bob Stone said to him, because Bob told me this later, he says, I saw this. Really talented kid sitting there on the bar stool wasting money. And I said to him, Every penny you spend here is wasted, but go start building yourself a boat, and every dollar you put into it, it's going to be worth $5 when you're finished. And Larry had already proven that he was very skilled with his hands, because he'd yeah. been doing the rigging on the schooner with, when he was on the schooner going across, because that was his first job when he came to California. He, by good fortune, got a job on the schooner for this filming jaunt across to Hawaii and back. Mm. But uh, so Bob showed him this particular boat that he liked called the Renegade, which was the little 24 foot Hess design, 24 foot 4 inches. Now, Ren- Renegade was 24 foot 7 officially because her rudder went, her tiller went through the transom. Oh, so you kind of, the length concludes the whole top of the transom.
3: Mm-hmm. That's so, arguable.
2: So, yeah. <laughs> well, there's arguers. So, there's So, was a, so twenty four twenty four foot four because but uh, see you we were asked how you met uh, Lyle Hess and uh, the renegade had been owned by a man named had been built for a man named uh, Hale Hale field mm. and you met Hale Field and talked to him
3: yeah and I, through him I met uh, Lyle Hess mm. and uh, that was a Real good association for me. He was an excellent boat builder and carpenter. He loaned me a lot of his tools, and I learned more about boat building from Lyle than
0: anyone, any one single person. And uh, so he was a designer and a builder.
2: Yeah, he'd had his own boat building company for many years, but and he built boats for the uh, navy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, uh-huh. Worked for the navy, but he failed as a boat builder after you know, in the early 50s fiberglass boats no that was just, it wasn't the fiberglass boats that put them out, it was bigger yards
3: well I think the uh, strip tank boats yeah. came in the L36s mm. those kind of boats by Chapman and Collagen yeah. they'd build 16 of them at a time you know. yeah. and they of a lot of boats yeah wow and it just cut the price down you know and they couldn't compete with it, foot for foot. You know. So he went into the concrete business.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
2: Curbs and gutters. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, with his brother, and uh, so he was. He was. Uh, you know, the other side of the story is that Lyle became very close friends to Larry and I. Didn't approve that we weren't married, but got over that too. <laughs> and uh, as I came along, like I said, when Larry had a t- keel timber. And uh, it just, the whole building fascinated me. And I realized that was my father's influence. I'd watch yeah, my father this
3: is the building. the girl wanted to be a civil engineer. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all yeah, of a sudden, I right. just caught on to sure. it. I
2: just I, I, I learned, I was fascinated by lofting. You know, how to drawing the boat up full size. And Larry explained it all to me. And he, and he was start, just starting to expand the transom, which is a very difficult part of, mm-hmm. supposedly. But it's just simple ma- simple mathematics and geometry. And right. to me, it was oh that's fun <laughs> and uh, so I really got a kick out of it this and a to, quick
3: study <laughs>
2: and to be involved in actually building something yeah. there's nothing so magic as to find out your hands have a use other than typing you know or cooking it, you know. that's why part of the reason that people love cooking nowadays is there's nothing else they do that's tactile mm-hmm. so they get to actually hold knives and vegetables that, to me to actually hold tools and sand things and watch Larry building things, see how they went together, and then I could actually grab hold of a piece of timber and help work on it too. And it see was,
0: something take shape see, like that. something takes shape. Yeah. It's an
2: absolute magic. Yeah. And then to think that not only are we building it for ourselves, <clears throat> and as Larry said, we had a hard time spending half of Larry's salary per month on the materials to keep that boat coming along. Wow. Because we we're not because we we're buying cheap materials because we were just on board Seraphine recently in the boat we built forty five years ago and she's in beautiful condition. Where is she now? She's on the east coast in oh, so
0: you sold her a while ago.
2: Oh many years ago
0: yeah,
2: yeah. So we sold her she's had four or five owners, but the new owner is fabulous.
0: Mahogany on oak
2: yeah.
3: Filipino, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So she was 24 feet, and people said, "Why would you build something that small with the kind of skills Larry had?" It was, he chose that because his he figured out how many hours it should take to build that, and figured he could do it within a year or two. It turned it turned out to take three years. Yeah. Uh, but if
3: it was 10,800 pounds, though, it was a pretty heavy little boat. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah,
2: it was pretty husky little boat. So how
0: much was there? There was lead in the queue on that boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: 2,700 pounds so uh, it was a joy to build it, it, yeah. it attracted so many interesting people into our lives that's the thing that the minute you start building something with your own hands it people start finding it Yeah. and become involved and they start helping you emotionally bringing you cookies, I, the neighbors across the fence got really upset one day, where because you're building an industrial area, that happened back up to a bigger housing
0: was this down in Long
2: Beach? Or no, maybe? it was in Newport Beach. Newport or Beach. Well, Costa Mesa, actually. Costa Mesa. Yeah. And uh, the neighbors peeked over the fence one day and said, What's all that racket? Larry was using a power plane, which is a pretty noisy old thing. Yeah. And Larry explained what was going on, and they said, Well, you're really disturbing our television. And Larry said, Well, oh, I'm sorry about that, but uh, I won't use it after 5 o'clock. Would that work? And if you have any special television programming, come and tell us. Oh, fine. <laughs> well, within about three weeks, they had organized to loosen the planks on the fence between us so they could come through and see what we were up to once or twice a week and bring us cookies really <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people get interested and they were yeah. lovely old timers yeah. I'm probably older than they were now but they yeah. you were know, sweet old timers but we met all sorts of people from boat designers to
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, at that time the. people would
3: bring r- us a piece of timber or yeah, a bit of rigging or a snap tool. shackles yeah
2: yeah, things they found in the garage. Yes. Yeah,
0: can you use this? Though? Yeah, I sure can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you built that boat from 65 to 68? Is that right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. More or, we, or less, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just about. yeah. we
2: launched in 68.
0: launched her in 68. You launched
2: her on Larry's birthday, which is Halloween. And
0: yeah, what's Seraphin? How did you come up with that name?
2: She's the name, named after a Welsh Trudor. Larry's back, family background Welsh. Okay,
0: okay. And that's mm-hmm. a long
2: story, but that's, that's yeah. the short
0: of it. Okay, okay. So then you got married in 68. Got then you married took on his off, birthday. And yep. you planned to sail for three or four months, I heard, mm-hmm. on one of the interviews. Yep. And then you got a gig to deliver a boat and mm-hmm. make some money. And you're like, wow, maybe we can stay a <laughs> little longer. We huh? got another six months down in Mexico. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we delivered another boat. And another
3: really? Six months. Yeah. And it just went on that
2: way. Or in Costa Rica, we sailed in there and uh, got to, you know, just we were lazing around and met this guy who owned a shrimp company and he said you, I need someone to fix up a little marina we, we got a dock down there it's not being used could you make it into a little marina there's you know always five or six yachts here in the harbor maybe someone would like to come alongside so we helped him figure out how to make it into a marina and while we're doing that all of a sudden uh, the mayor of the town comes down with a boat builder and says we've got this really wealthy American who's got a boat that's broken and the local shipyard doesn't work on yachts, doesn't have anybody to do that kind of work, would you help us out? And Larry says, but I can't get a visa. And they said, a working visa. working visa here in Costa Rica. And he says, the government wants this man to stay. You, you agree to fix his boat, you got a visa. And we had a visa an hour later. Really? Yeah. They needed Larry, he had the skills, and it turned into... A in
3: any case, we found we could, by working uh, three months, both of us, on a project and you know keeping at it working really hard we could earn enough money take, to take nine months off <laughs> every year and we did that for years and years Yeah. and that was the whole pro- we did it by us all, both earning enough money
2: yeah both of us worked pretty hard wow uh, Larry uh, for, for the first several years it was we were completely dependent on Larry skippering whatever the project was you know being at a delivery, or I'd do his finish work when he was doing, you
0: know, repair work, and. Uh, and you do that what, at whatever port you were at, wherever whatever the, area the world was. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, we've worked in seventeen different countries, and uh, some of the jobs have been hilarious. I we ended up, I ended up coordinating a wooden boat festival in Sydney, Australia, the second. Everwooden Boat Festival. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it had some politics involved. It was really interesting. Really, what year was that? Like uh, that would have been nineteen ninety. Wow. And uh, we, Larry, <laughs> Larry surveyed votes for the tourist industry in Columbia, Cartagena, Cartagena. Yeah, so trying to get them up to you, tell them how to bring their boats closer to U.S. Coast Guard certification so that tourists wouldn't be terrified by the fact that the rocks were rolling around. That the was <laughs> rocks were rolling around. Wow. Um,
3: <laughs> I showed them how to put some timber down there and so they couldn't roll.
2: Oh, really? And that was where they had to start to make the boat safer. They were all round rocks, too. <clears throat> <laughs> and let's see, you worked in England, uh, did one job for a boatyard, and then they tried to convince them to stay on forever, but you know, we, we've worked in Singapore. We've worked wherever we are. the The nice thing is, if it's a foreign yacht that needs work, we just sign on to their crew manifest. Oh, really? And then you don't need a working permit. Oh,
3: wow! That's the worst case. That's the worst case. Almost I never see. have to do anything. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Or if
2: you deliver a boat, of course you're on the crew manifest, so you don't mm-hmm. fall under working in that other country. So mm-hmm. yeah. So and then about. Uh, three years into our voyaging I discovered writing I got mad at a magazine article wrote a letter to the editor and he asked me to write something to show why I disagreed and uh, Larry said you put your foot in it now you got to answer and that led to a whole new little arrow in our quiver yeah so it just was a case of keeping our expenses really low not real low we kept we didn't have the expenses most people do because our boat was small, didn't have an engine.
0: Yeah. Um, it's so a really
3: a expensive money. item, you know. Yeah. yeah. We, it, we spent you more. I wonder else. how much convenience is it, it when it, you take it apart on a dock on Mexico, and there's greasy parts all over the place, and you can't get any parts. And people are just go to in and I wonder how much convenience can that be worth? Yeah.
2: yeah. Is that comfort? Yeah, convenience. Yeah, our convenience. That's right. what the
0: motor's all about. Yeah, yeah. convenience. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. So we, we took a different tack, and uh, we, it led us to meet different people and have different experiences, but that's what we were after. A
3: yeah. lot of people end up in various harbors, oily harbors that are miserable, because their engine's broken down. We just left. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we were never <laughs> late. We have never been late for anything in our life. Mainly because we've never told anyone when we were getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the one
0: time—the
2: one time that we actually had a
0: schedule—it
2: was something we didn't particularly like. It worked out okay. We tried when we were when we were in Chile after we'd come around Cape Horn on Tablasen. The People up here asked us. They said it was the twenty-fifth anniversary of the Wooden Boat Festival, and they really, really hoped. They knew we were in the Pacific. You see, that's the problem with radios. Everyone else has oh, radios. We yeah. don't have a radio, but people yeah. said that we'd just come around Cape Horn, and therefore oh. we're in the Pacific. So, of course, if you're in the Pacific, you got to sail up here for the festival.
0: Yeah.
2: And after very, very careful consideration, we agreed to do it. Saying that uh, if we didn't, but,
3: but don't count on us being there.
2: Yeah, don't mm-hmm. count on our boat being there. That if we will try, we'll, yeah, we'll yep. try to bring the boat too.
0: Yeah,
2: and so we left. That was
0: to this festival. Yeah, yeah. to okay. this festival. Yeah,
2: and Which so one was that? that was the 25th. That's when we sailed up from Chile and went over to the uh, Marques. We had a fabulous voyage from there it's, to the Marquesas.
0: 36th now. Yeah, 36 this year. So that would have been 11 years ago. Yeah. 2000, 2001. Exactly. No, no. Can I have the no, water? Mm hmm.
2: Must have been the 27th. Well, I don't know. For some reason, it was 25 years since we'd last been there. That was it.
0: Yeah. So okay. it, was, it would have been 2003. Because you came to the very first festival here. No, the no we second came one. to the second. The second one, okay. Yeah, All right. which was
2: fabulous. It was, more <laughs> of an, it was more of a symposium than a festival. Yeah.
0: They learned how to do
3: the second time. <laughs>
2: yeah, they did. It was very organic. The, the first wooden, second wooden vote festival was very organic to the point where the local fishermen and hippies, I have to call them, provided the food. And we had the blueberry pies with a whole wheat crust. And everything was whole wheat. Really, and were, it was different. It was, tasty. Yeah. It was I'm not. But I'm laughing. Everything was whole wheat, and everything was. The fishermen just gave us salmon, and we planked. Everything them. was good for you. <laughs> yeah. And we took over the whole fort and had classes going everywhere in the fort. It was yeah. very enjoyable right.
0: Yeah, we went for ten days. Well, yeah. cool. Yeah. So you made it in time for that.
2: Well, no. We're talking about this one in, in 2003. <laughs> after coming around the horn, we had to sail 9,000 miles to get here. and it put a pressure on us that I didn't enjoy at all even though we'd allowed three months extra it still felt it was constantly in the back of our mind so the difference between our voyaging and a lot of people's is we've always avoided any schedule at all we've always said when people say where are you going next we said well here of a good party going on somewhere is there a good festival we should go to
0: (laughs) no commitments on that yeah so you had Seraphin for about 11 years, and then how did you decide to uh, build Talison and get a different boat? What went into that decision?
3: Well, we wanted a boat for
0: colder climates, you know,
3: and we could have a little heater in it. And oh. and a bathtub. Yeah. That's basically the only difference between the two boats. Really? Yeah, the interior's almost exactly the same, except there's more room aft for uh, the tub. Mm-hmm. and the heater yeah. really?
2: I think the, the, the it's a complex issue we didn't need a new boat in many ways
0: yeah
2: we never we never intended to live on Seraphim oh we intended to go walk for five or six Yeah, you know, for see. five or
0: six
3: boats we, are for going places not yeah. for living at the marina yeah if you live at the marina it's
0: boring yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, boring! You need, yeah. you,
2: you need a big boat to live in a mm-hmm. marina, you need a small boat to go across oceans. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you've got to come up with the right compromise. Yeah. But uh, after 11 years of, well, after eight, nine years of voyaging, or eight or nine years of voyaging, uh, we were both a little bit restless to stop moving, to do something, to be in one place for a while. And Larry wanted to try out some of the ideas on boat building that he'd seen in, uh, in our travels. And uh, do a more sophisticated job of building a boat. Mm-hmm. But he also desperately wanted to write a book on boat building to sh- show the details I that he had learned yeah. that nobody talked about. So Bell didn't
3: do any the detail on how to sharpen tools oh. or how to loft, pick up bevels, the very Now, Picking
2: up bevels is a big part yeah. of it, you
3: yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to. A book that would do the details that were left
0: out of. So, you were going to write that while you built the new boat? No, I'll take the, the photographs.
2: Larry said, I learn from photographs. Oh. Other people must. I don't like, re- you know, I need pictures.
3: It's it was actually uh, L. Francis Herrschop's book. He had that uh, uh, photographic study of a boat being framed up and yeah. w- w- went more or less it rather quickly, but it was really good because you could learn so much from a photograph other than the way it was put together and the method it was being built, but the way they clamped it and the way they could hold it and, and uh, the kind of stuff you could learn from photographs that you couldn't learn from reading about
2: it. So Larry was very passionate about the idea of, right from the beginning when we started designing how we were going to build the shed we wanted to build it. We'd be, when we were sailing across the Pacific, we were designing boat sheds. Oh. And uh, so for two years, he talked about building the boat to use some of the more sophisticated building methods that we'd learned from seeing some wonderful boats around the world and being in great shipyards in other places in Europe. But to do these details like this, how to hold things, how to m- measure more accurately or more carefully, how to build, how to stop talking about making boats simpler to build easier for this amateur, instead say, how to make the amateur more capable of building real quality work. Mm. So Larry says, we got to take photographs, got to do photographs. So when we got, when we got back to, the, as we were sailing back, we were collecting materials, we went, ended up going around the world to get back to California. With the, I wanted to try writing as a professional. I've been doing a lot of writing along the way and selling a lot of articles. We'd written two books, but I thought the idea of actually having an office and actually sitting down and being a writer would be quite an adventure. While well, we built this boat together, so we had this plan. And the other thing was, it's cute to be young hippies wandering around the world on our little 24-foot boat with five thousand... We never touched Larry's
1: $5,000. Really? We
2: never touched it. We always had... We still probably have it somewhere <laughs> Because that
0: Somewhere
2: was our safety—it <laughs> was our safety net. Yeah. But we can't. But Larry was over forty, and I was getting close to it. And we owned a twenty-four-foot sailboat, some wonderful adventures, and five thousand dollars in the bank. And we said, you know, that's cute when you're young, but as you get older, it would pay to have a bit more. Yeah. And people aren't going to no, be quite as end up as
3: broke hippies when yeah. you're 60. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of those around. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so we decided that uh, we made this plan, and that was that we would not sell Towison or Sourcon, that we'd keep her, and build a new boat out of what I could earn as a writer. And if I couldn't earn enough writing, Larry could always take in some boat-building work, and we could work together on some projects. He'd work boat building all full time I'd work boat building for 20 hours a week helping him, that was the plan and we'd build a shed that would let him take the photographs and then when that was finished then we could try to put together a boat building book so that's what we did but there was quite some amazing complications in the way and that's why I ended up writing a book that we're promoting right now on this, that's why we're in the states we're promoting Canyon, which is the story of what actually happened when we set that plan in motion.
1: Really? Uh, instead
2: it's called of Bull Canyon. Bull Canyon. Yeah. Like, uh, and Bull Canyon in the subtitles, a uh, boat builder, a writer, and other wildlife. And it's the story of what happened when we actually put that whole plan into action and found a place to build a boat that we could afford to build it.
0: Where was that? Where did you build that boat at?
2: On top of a mountain. In Bull Canyon. In Bull Canyon. <laughs> and where's that? It's out in the California, uh, at the edge of the California desert between Lake Elsinore and Paris, California, which still doesn't tell you a darn thing.
3: Yeah. Near Riverside.
2: Near Riverside. Okay. Palm Springs, Riverside, and Newport Beach, California, almost exactly in the middle of that triangle. Oh, There's see. some very isolated hills, and we chose to build the boat uh, up a Mountain Canyon Road, well... On top of a mountain canyon, with no electricity, no telephones, no water, except our own artesian springs, which we found.
3: If there's a harder way to do something, Larry and Party will find it. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's what,
0: that's what Larry's was best Was little said. stone
2: place? Little Stone that I've Cottage. Seen a picture of? Yeah, yeah, Little Stone Cottage. Did you build
0: that,
3: or was that? There? No,
2: that was a very old abandoned. Well, we fixed it up. Yeah, it had been abandoned. So that's the whole story about, yeah. it was, but it also, it shows the passion and the sheer fun building a boat can be,
3: if it becomes your I built your that dream. boat exactly the way I wanted it. No compromises. I'm to buy that book.
2: And he remembered, I that book. It just, uh, if I can brag a little bit, yeah. it just won its third literary award. Nice. Uh, the Willow Cather Award for,
0: congratulations.
2: Uh, what do they call it? Uh, creative nonfiction. And you wrote the book, Clint. She
3: yeah. doesn't tell everybody. Almost everybody.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it also. Yes, yeah, so I, 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 it's a, actually my... It, it, it's a book that took many, many years to write because yeah. deciding how to write and tell what was a, probably one of the biggest adventures in our lives.
0: So that was in 83 that you built Tallison? You started it in 83? We started in... We launched it s- in 83. We launched, we launched in 83.
2: Yeah, and Larry took 6,000 photographs while he was wow. Uh, building the boat. He'd build one side, you know, boats are two-sided. He'd do that on one side, and he'd actually, we'd discuss in the evening, pictures that he should remember to take, and the next day, some...
3: When I worked on the port side, then I took the
0: photographs.
2: Using a tripod. And there was better
0: light, light on the port side, anyway. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now that book is called Boat Building... Detail's of classic boat building. Detail's of classic boat building. And it's just about building.
2: building the hull, because that's yeah. the where Larry felt he had the information, mm-hmm. the ideas, the tricks. You know, how do you handle big timbers? And how, but And that's
0: carvel planking, yeah.
2: But in it, what he went out of his way after much discussion, he decided to also show the pros and well, right from the beginning, you want to show the pros and cons of each choice you can make when you're boat building. Everything from uh, what timbers to strip
3: plank to carvel plank to three skin planking. Mm -hmm. Talk about the pros and cons of all three of them. I see.
2: Yeah, and then how many hours he put in? Because I'm being the accountant. I said, this is what I want you to put in for me. I'll keep track of the hours that you put into the boat, and you put that down, just to give people some idea, because you're a professional, and we are building it trying for professional hours. Yeah. In you know, other words, uh, other than I put a little extra varnish, and you don't really need five coats of varnish inside the lockers, but. Uh, <laughs> is that, so you know, um, so, the, so the boat building project, and we did keep seraphim for the almost a year and a half. Someone came up and insisted on buying her because they wanted her. And we hid that money. We never touched that money. So the whole project, in the end, left us not... We've, too many of our friends said, I'm going to build a bigger boat, because this one isn't exactly right for cruising, and they'd sell their boat, use the money to build a bigger boat. And then they'd end up with a bigger, more expensive boat that cost them more to run it, and no more money than they'd started with. And it
3: invariably happened. It they'd happens spend all the money on, on the boat. The second yeah. boat, mm-hmm. on the last boat. Yeah. How so many hours
0: did that boat take to build? 7,800, I think. Yeah. 7,800.
2: And that included the wind vane, the dinghy, the dinghy Selling chocks. Dinghy. Yeah. So... uh and that by
0: 24, how many days is that?
2: The average man works 2,000 hours a year. Oh, that's
0: true. Yeah. So that's how we always
2: show people. Yeah, okay. So four years, full yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. But then there was two of us, so it was a little bit less time than
3: yeah, I Yeah, I often would put in more than 40 hours a week. Because yeah. I was working full time. You know, right. And Lynn was earning the money.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you, you launched uh, Talisman in 83, mm-hmm. and uh, you still have her in yes. yep. New Zealand,
2: yep. which She's is where you
0: live. Now, when did you get to New Zealand? How did you land there?
2: That was intentional. Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't want to go the same ways and same places we'd gone the first time too much although we had to go back to Baja California it's still one of our favorite places to sail yeah that's great it's beautiful and the colors are gorgeous and the Mm -hmm. Mexican people are so warm and friendly and the music
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Other than that I don't like (laughs) and the food's not so bad either Uh, but we we were invited to New Zealand and so many sailing friends had gone down there and ended up
3: Staying, staying there. Yeah. and loving it, but there was. We wanted to a, find out what they were staying for.
2: Yeah, that was very much. But then Eric and Susan Hiscock uh, were very well known cruising sailors of our era. They wrote several books that influenced us when we were first dreaming. Of it. they were British sailors, terribly confident. Everything was prudent or confident, mm-hmm. and uh, some people call it boring. I. But on the other hand, boy. They never actually, got into trouble. They never got in, into trouble, but we had met them s- several different times, I think nine different times when we were delivering boats, and we'd come to be friends with them, but they always teased us because they always, they said, yeah, you're sailing on a 24-footer, and we'd be coming in with a 60-foot boat we were delivering and tying alongside them, or 48-foot power boat, and so they were teasing us. So we said, we're going to sail this boat down and show it to them because they're getting older. And they were, they, they were coming back from... Australia, so we said we'll meet down there. And when we got there and we did rendezvous, they told us, since it was our first time in New Zealand, they were telling us some of the favorite spots, and they said there's this beautiful little cove on an island just north of Auckland. If you need a place to spend the winter, it's really safe. And it's hurricane-proof, and it's beautiful. And we got some friends there, and they gave us a letter to these people. And about two hours later, we were on shore in Opua, and accidentally met this young couple who'd read one of our books, and he was a young boat builder, and we became friends. And he was maybe in his 30s, 20s, or and he'd just gotten married two weeks before, and his girlfriend was gorgeous, our wife. And so we ended up palling around together for a few days, and they took us diving dredging for, sco- for scallops, and he said... Where are you going next? We said, Oh, you're we kind of thinking of heading towards Auckland, the main city. And he said, There's this neat little bay that if I could ever afford to have a little piece of land there, I'd like to have a boat building yard there. And he told us the same little cove that Eric and Susan Hiscock had told North us North Cove. About. North Cove. So we had to stop there. And we sailed in out of a westerly gale into the North Cove and woke up in the morning and Larry's standing in the companionways at Lynn. I gotta, if ever I could have a little spot in this place, it'd be so great to have, if when we got old and decrepit and needed to retire. And three months later... Oh, three months later,
0: happens <laughs> <laughs> <yeah. It> <laughs> everybody eventually. <laughs>
2: three months later we went to a real estate agent because we decided to spend the winter in New Zealand. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> just because New Zealand really fascinated us, it was very, very large land mass, very small population, it was all about sailing
0: more sheep than people
2: at that time yeah
0: yeah but Uh, you can eat the sheep (laughs) yeah
2: but to make a long story short we went to the real estate agent and he said oh there's a bunch of small pieces of land out there nobody wants waterfront it's not worth it's too much trouble it's too expensive you know Uh, Rusts everything your house gets you know everything rusts out in your house and you know
3: but the, a lot of the Kiwis have low income, you know. So yeah. Or if they're retired, they also have low income. Yeah. So everything is about maintenance. And, yeah.
2: And uh, it is harder to maintain a house yeah. that's right next near the water. Yes. So to make a, and also being a, on an island,
0: is trouble people was people couldn't work back there
2: because there's no roads or telephone. No, there was telephone, no roads on the island, and no jobs particularly. So yeah. Uh, so he took us out to look at a few places, and uh, there was. Couple places we could have bought for twelve or thirteen thousand dollars that were title, but we said, "What? The, what about that place over there is for sale?" And he said, "It's such a wreck; no one would buy it." He says, "I've had that. that was a little house with a boatyard and uh, a boat shop. No boatyard and a big jetty, and uh, it had been for sale for many years, and the price well, had dropped seven or eight years. Yeah. and the price had dropped from one hundred and fifty; it was down at eighty-five thousand, and that's New Zealand dollars and." Uh, we went and looked at it, and it was a wreck. It was, you know, the ultimate fixer upper but we were fools, and we offered them exactly what we'd gotten from Seraphim, because that's what we had in the bank.
3: Remember, there's a harder way to do it. Larry Party will find it. Yeah.
2: And for th- the equivalent of 38000 American dollars, we ended up with two acres of land with a cottage that looked like a wreck and turned out it wasn't. It just needed to be cleaned up, and a little boat shop that looked neat but was really a wreck. Wow. And uh, oh, I have permits. no, not one inch of flat ground anywhere. Oh, really? And so, uh, <laughs> to make a long story short, after two years of voyaging, we settled in for a year and a half to and started cleaning it up.
3: Show them
0: your photographs.
2: Well, that's not we, that um, won't help you on
0: your website, <laughs> um, yeah.
2: Although, well, you could put them yeah, on, yeah. I can
0: put them on the, on the blog, yeah. Well, afterwards, I'll show you some photographs in a few up. minutes, yeah? okay
2: and uh so it was a real picture up it was a fun project it was interesting and it had the little boat shop so larry almost immediately started people started coming in and they heard that a classic boat builder was there oh. and a rigger and we had and i had
3: Talison as a showpiece yeah
2: you know, we got involved in the local sailing racing scene and pretty soon we had classic boats showing up
3: that's the great thing about building your own boat yeah you're traveling in your Showpiece. Your know, yeah. yeah. calling card. The calling card. Yeah. And you can show people or my wife would show <laughs> what I could do. Yeah. And people immediately, you built this boat? Great. Well would you work for me? Yeah. And
2: rigging, learning how to splice wire. Mm-hmm. One of the most Larry has taught people how to splice wire all around the world. Yeah. In fact he and Brian Toss, when we came the the second wooden boat vessel, we set up a splicing booth between all of us and we ended up with eight Nick Menton was here too. Mm-hmm. We ended up with eight rigging vices hanging there, and people coming by and poking their fingers with wires and finding out how actually easy it is. Wow. So, yeah, so...
0: What year did you buy the place in New Zealand?
2: 85. 80? No, 86,
0: 86. 86, 96. 96. wow.
2: So, uh, and so it's become a home base. Yeah. We sailed off quite often from there. I mean, within a year and a half, we just couldn't handle it. And we sailed over to Australia. <laughs> for a month and came back seven months later
3: I remember when we were sailing out for the last time Wally yelled at I see you swallowed the anchor
2: I thought you swallowed the anchor
3: yeah I thought you swallowed (laughs) and I said it dropped right through
2: Wally (laughs) (laughs) we didn't come home for we didn't get back to the island for 18 years after that one (laughs) but we'd fly back 18 years the longest we've stayed away from the the island yeah was eight years without coming home
0: at all oh
2: but it's it, you know it's just a simple little combination. Yeah.
0: So this uh, th- at this point in your lives you're there like half of the year or something, or? more or less. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's endless summer. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, we've been yeah. So
0: when it's winter time there, we
3: come here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We
2: didn't sail Talisman back there until two and a half years ago. Had oh, really? a wonderful voyage down to the Pacific about two and a half years ago. And uh, d- d- we should explain to your readers that Larry's seventy, almost seventy three, and I'm. Um, Sixty-eight. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, not, not
3: seventy-four.
2: You're not no, I got it wrong last time. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, we've Larry's had a few health issues, so we are not crossing oceans at the moment. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen next year? Yeah. So having a home base has turned out to be really nice. Good, good. But uh, it's we're
3: working out pretty well. Working out pretty
2: well. Cool.
3: But the way we planned it. Yeah, yeah. That's magic. Good. But yeah. it
2: all happened because Larry decided to run away to sea and Wow, that's an amazing and story. We've never had...
3: Uh Larry, I wanted to have a holiday.
2: You wanted to have a holiday. That's what started it. That's yeah. right.
3: Not just two weeks. Yeah, and so the yeah. only
2: problem we've had is people say, well, you know, what are you, and what do you do and I said well we're paid to be professional (laughs) (laughs) bombs."
0: so when I noticed on the website that uh, Larry's traveled about 7,000 more nautical miles than you have do you have a plan to catch up on that or
2: yes (laughs) only now I don't know but Larry just bought me a beautiful birthday gift oh did he yeah and uh, it's a little sailboat oh
3: wow so. A little hair shop design.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. It's a hair shaft 12 and a half, although we bought the little fiberglass version mm-hmm. because, you know, we have enough wooden boats to take care of right now. Down at our home base in New Zealand, yeah, we have Talison, who we still, she's going to to be laid up for a bit of a refit for the next three when we get home for three or four months yeah so we needed something to sail on so it's a little but little hair and a half. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. cool when did you get that that. just got it this year
2: a week and a half ago oh wow we made the final decision and it's getting packed into a container next week to get shipped to new zealand
0: where is she being shipped from cape cod cape cod wow so
2: we've been on the we've been traveling on the east coast yeah
0: well, that'll be a fun yeah. little boat to get out on,
2: huh? Yeah. It's small. It's something I can sail on my own.
3: Old man Hirschhoff designed it when he was 80 to be used when you were retired. Oh. And it's an actual perfect job of, of designing for an older guy. Because you can walk around in this big
0: cockpit. It's got nice high combings that you can sit against and nice. that sort of thing. And... Uh, it's a keel boat, no trapeze or, or a hiking straps No, exactly. <laughs> it's got
3: fifty uh, percent balance ratio. Oh, it's a real little boat. You
2: know? A little ship, and it's cute. It's really
0: pretty. Yeah, yeah and
2: right. I, I've got a few godchildren who are just the age I can teach them how to sail. Yeah, they live. They have a home on the island.
0: And you've got an adopted granddaughter, I read somewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. Alexi, is that? Lexi, the,
0: just Lexi. Lexi, Lexi Yeah, okay. yes, She's as smart as a whip. She's a Kiwi?
2: She's Well, she's, her parents met cruising. He's American, mother's Canadian, and mm-hmm. they sailed, they were both sailing with friends in Mexico when they met, and they sailed on together to New Zealand. And on Christmas Day 1989, we were back in New Zealand for the America's Cup. We were making Christmas dinner, and uh, noticed an American yacht come in, invited them to join us, and uh, they just bought the house up the code from us, turned out, and he's the head of Team New Zealand's computer design program, because... But uh, we became godparents to both their children. There's now two of them, mm-hmm. the boy and the girl. And it's kind of fun to have young people in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Being the godparents
3: is better than grandparents because you can send them home anytime you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's really good. It's really good. But, uh, so yeah. we have a nice. We have a it, life's turned out to be quite good for us. But we still stick to the simplicity and yeah. the Keeping Our life as simple as possible, and not owning a lot right. of electronics or a lot of gear. No yeah. engine on. And right. the nice thing about the little Buzzards Bay, you know, the little uh, 12 and a half is so you can paddle at home if you have to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just keep it very simple. So I read somewhere, go small, go simple, but go now. That's kind of been your motto. That works for us anyway. Yeah. I, I say think that's that great.
2: The most important thing that getting older has taught us is this thing that we've not preached, we've tried to encourage right from the beginning if you read our seraphim books we started right there we began to see people saying when the two of us retire we're going and Larry would say when the two of you retire who guarantees you're both going to have good health
3: yeah. What I just because act- you're 65 doesn't mean to say you're gonna be in perfect health right yeah, yeah. Right. it means you've kind of worn out workers what you are
2: <laughs> well and not to insult you, there's some many people at the age of 70 are in fantastic health or 80 but they're
3: a rarity. They're rare. Mm-hmm. And when
2: both people are, but also you're not as flexible emotionally yeah. or physically. And if you learn to get out cruising when you're in a... If you take a break from your life. In
3: your 40s or your 50s, you're better off.
2: And then you've got the skills so you can do it again when you're 60 or 65 because you've you've done it already. You've done it already. Right. And everybody's going to give you lots of reasons not to do
1: things. hmm
2: Right. but I'm going to give you one reason to do it because if you don't do it now there's you're missing a chance mm-hmm. and you can always go back to something different in life you you don't have to go back to the same exact thing you left and the new
3: same job you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah but you right.
2: have new skills and new awareness of the outside world
0: mm-hmm. you might
2: not want to earn as much money as you did at that job you might not be you might learn you don't need it
0: yeah yeah. So. Very cool. So is this your last year at the Port Townsend Festival, you think? Or? I don't know yet. Yeah. I'll play it by ear, see how things go. Huh? Well,
2: remember that uh, old, <laughs> the, the old joke about the old Mainer, a guy living up in Maine, and some guy comes up and said, you lived here all your life? And he says, not yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I
0: like that answer. That's our yeah. answer. Yeah, exactly.
2: Who, who knows? We don't stand that far ahead.
0: Yeah. But. Yeah, nobody knows the future. Nobody knows the future. Yeah, today is good though. It's sunny. We're in Port Townsend. There's a lot of wooden boats. The festival's people. on. The festival's on, so the that's, that's on. really fun. So, La, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. And uh, there's so much more we could talk about. We've already gone for an hour. And uh, <laughs> But uh, any parting comments you'd like to make to our listeners? Larry, let's start with you. Anything else you'd like to say? Any advice or tips or words of wisdom?
3: Well, Frank Manson sent this to me years ago. And he says, "Never compromise quality, never." And I believe that. Mm-hmm.
2: When I look at the little seraphin who that we built forty five years ago, um, I would say that everywhere we spent a little bit extra time and used better quality. It shows she's in lovely condition, but I'd like to add that um, if you find a good vote builder, marry him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks for your time today. Lynn and Larry, thank you so much for taking the time to do that interview. Uh, it was an absolute blast for me. What a great way to connect with people. I love what you guys have done. And your motto of go small, go simple, and go now really applies to a lot of stuff. I would encourage people listening to this to follow their dreams, their passions. Don't wait to do something that you really want to do. Go for it. Figure out a way to do it now. If you're going to build a boat, go build it. If you want to sail the world, sail the world. Make it happen like the parties did. Also, I'm going to put on the um, on the podcast show notes a link to Lynn and Larry's website, which is L A N D lpardey.com. dot com. They've got great books and videos, articles and tips, resources, a blog. Lynn's a professional writer. They've got photographs, really cool stuff. I would encourage you to go there and check out some of their stuff. And I've, I've actually just purchased uh, my first Lynn and Larry book called Bull Canyon, which is a story of them building their 29-foot... A sailboat called Talison, and I'm really looking forward to reading that. So please check out their website, and uh, they're great people. It's fun stuff, and it doesn't get any better than that. I also want to say thanks again to Corey and Christina for flying out to the festival. It was a blast meeting you guys and connecting with somebody that's been listening to my podcast for quite a while (laughs) that was really cool you guys are great folks and i'm looking forward to following your journey uh whatever that looks like for you guys it's going to be fun so just encourage you to continue to pursue your dreams that's awesome awesome stuff well if you'd like to support hooked on wooden boats at all and i'm not getting rich off this folks i've made 23 dollars to date on this uh podcast so that pays for like what six or seven lattes but that's okay I'm having fun with it but if you would like to help support financially a little bit if you go to my website and you click on the resources menu at the top brings you to a list of items that are sold on Amazon if you click on any of those items and you make a purchase at Amazon of any product I get paid four percent and people have been doing that so that's pretty cool On my homepage is a banner for Jamestown Distributors who sells boat building and marine supplies. If you click on that banner and go to their website and make a purchase, I get paid a little bit. And I can personally say that I've purchased their products. Uh, They have really good prices. They have fast shipping. I've been totally satisfied with what I've gotten there, so I would encourage you to do that. Also, if you sign up for Stitcher Radio... Uh, S-T-I-C-H-E-R.com, and you subscribe to Hook on Wooden Boats. I think I get paid a dollar per subscriber, something like that. On my homepage, there's a button at the top on the menu that says Store. If you go there, you can purchase T-shirts, cups, mugs, hats, flip-flops, stuff like that that has the hooked on Wooden Boats logo on it. And when you buy that stuff, I make a couple bucks. So that's some fun stuff you can do to help support the show if you feel like it. The other thing I would really appreciate if you like the show is go to iTunes and give me a review. Hopefully be a five-star review on iTunes. That would be awesome. Well, until next week, keep the bright side up and the barnacled side down. And I also wanted to say that I'll have a very special interview next week again. So please be sure and tune in. It'll be an interview from the Port Townsend Wooden Boat Festival. Have a great week. This is Wooden Boat Dan, over and out. Catch you on the flip side.